Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Scherba, and today I am extremely excited to be sitting down with Scott Stratton, creator of Unmarketing, professional speaker, and six-time best-selling author. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on here. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your career journey and personal journey leading up until today? It feels like I need some kind of, you know, soundtrack for this part because (laughs) it starts when I was 12. Like this is one of those things. So let me take you back to 12 year old Scott. So this will be 87 Uh, Scott sitting in his living room uh, with the one TV as it was back in that day. And it was on a uh, WNED Buffalo. Oh man. A PBS station across Lake Ontario. Yeah. From where we are now. And it it was on that channel. It was a pledge drive. So back then they would uh, um, ask for, you know, X amount of dollars a month to keep the public broadcasting system on the air. And they'd give you these, it was like Kickstarter before Kickstarter. (laughs) If you gave $10 a month, you'd get a coffee mug. If you gave $25 a month, you'd get a t-shirt and a mug. And if you gave $35 a month, you would get a VHS cassette of Les Brown's talk. And they said Les Brown is a motivational speaker. And now we're actually going to show you the Les Brown program now. Please call in. And it starts. And this person gets up on stage, Les Brown, and starts just talking. Yeah. And it was riveting. And the reason why I was on that channel is because it was the 80s and you had to get up and change the channel. So it'd stay on the channel for like three days. And I was just sitting there. I saw it. And I, I was mesmerized. And my mom came in the room and I said, is that a job? Like, can people do that for, can I just yell at people? <laughs> She's like, if you try hard enough, you can. And, and I was really lucky early on. And one of the things I try to do these days is obviously for me is figure out where, where the, the I think everything in life is luck, timing, skill, effort, and others. And, and I used to think it was luck, timing, and skill. And then I realized it was, sorry, I, I, then I realized it was luck, timing, skill, and effort. And then I realized it was luck, timing, skill, effort, and others, which was all five of those parts usually play a, play a part in anything in success. Right. So for that, you know, it was, it was the luck of, of, and the timing of it. And, and then it was realizing that I had a natural skill and I was very lucky, very fortunate to realize early on and encouraged about it, that I had the ability to talk in front of people. Right. Now, the, the, your report card back then would have said class clown. It would have said he carries <laughs> off talking too much, that especially in the familiar. 80s. Because, you know, in the 80s, they hand wrote those report cards. These yeah. were not standardized report cards. They told you exactly what they thought of your of your punk kid. That's right. Back then. And me, it was the same thing. I was a class clown. I was doing this. But I was always the fact that I just did it. And I never got nervous. I never got shy about it. I just would, I, from doing the air band performance at Christmas time in the living yeah. room, the relatives too. I just knew that I had an ability. And it's, as I went through school, I realized that it's an ability that most people didn't have naturally. Right. Class, class president, I would just get up and riff. And people would have a whole speech with, with, with cue cards and all this type of stuff. And I would just talk. And I just, you, you just go through school and realizing this is my thing. Yeah. This is my... And I, I, like sometimes people go through life uh, and they just they discover really late on like this is my thing and I've just the privilege and the the the, the absolute um, luck of just realizing younger this could be my thing and it's actually what got me through high school and college was the ability to present and it's one of the skills that if I went to anybody right now and if you're listening to this right now and you are 
you know, at any point, I don't mean just younger and trying to get into a field or climbing the ladder. I mean, at any point of it, the ability to stand up and talk in front of a room of five people can change your career trajectory. And the problem is for me is that even though I taught it, uh, at, at a college level and, and presenting is that it's hard to transfer some of the stuff over right. because I can't, I don't know what it's like to feel nervous or like I'm going to be sick or any of these type of things. So I said, I'm going to find a way to make that my thing and how I can do that. And the Les Brown thing was first. And as I go through the time and then I started getting older as a teenager and you start, I turned 14 and you know, I, I turned, when I turned 14, I got my first job at McDonald's like yeah. a lot of people did. And I had, you know, the Wayne's World quote, I had many hair nights and name tags throughout my career <laughs> and punching the clock and doing the thing. But one of the things I did notice also, because I also started forming as I started getting into my mid late teens, the actual Scott we know today, which is the, um, how do we put it? The contrarian Scott, uh, the one who okay. uh, doesn't like uh, when uh, people, you know, try to take advantage of others. And uh, I had a problem with, with bullies and I didn't get bullied. Because I was a metal guy in high school. I had long hair, skull (laughs) rings. I was 150 pounds soaking wet, but you just don't just leave that guy alone. Yeah. But what I I just hated when seeing other people were having it done. And then in the workplace, what I had learned was what I really hated was bosses and managers and people like that who would Mm. have power trips and who would have stuff like, and they would break the law. And so I started learning more about the law and the Employment Standards Act in Ontario. And so I worked at a movie theater, Famous Players Movie Theater here in Oakville. And I got to the point where I walked around with the Employment Standards Act in my pocket. I was that guy. And I realized HR was going to be kind of a way for me to use that passion. So I knew my skill set was talking. Right. But my passion, and this this was the golden combination, finding the passion, uh, the skill set and the passion for something and then find out where that role is. Right. right. So it's role, passion, skill set. Those are the things you're looking for in a career or where I was going to go. Knowing full well since 12 years old, my end goal was going to be I wanted to speak on stage for a living. I knew that eventually was what I wanted to do forever. Right. But in the meantime, I also knew that I'm not going to walk out on stage as a 22 year old or something and just start riffing about anything and everything. You also had to realize that I had to build a reputation. I had to build a body of work, at least for me. And not every speaker does that or advise you to do that, but it was for me. And so I realized HR was going to be the place because I had a passion for it. I didn't like school. I didn't care about school. I, you know, I had the record in my high school for, I had more absences than marks in grade 11 math. I had 43 <laughs> absences and my mark ended up being 37. Like that's a record. <laughs> you should get tossed out before that. But I just had yeah. a real issue with authority. Still do, by the way. And it was just like, I, I, it came down to my final exam in high school. And if I passed it, I graduated and went to Sheridan College for HR and f- did all the stuff I wanted. And if I failed it, I would have not gone to college or anything. So it was a real push and yeah. uh, got out and went to Sheridan College for HR because I had a passion for it. But the same thing there, I wouldn't show up to class half the time. But when I would come, I would come if I came late, I would stay an extra hour after class if the prof was willing just to talk about the issues, not the class. Right. But like the issue, if we were talking about hiring and I would get there and say, okay, yeah, I, I get it by the textbook. What happens in the actual world? And the nice thing about a kind of a community college angle of it is it's people that were teaching were in the field. Right. Exactly. And, um, and so that's why I really related to it. And so it happened that every, every teacher knew me, not always for the best reason, but that I had passion for it. I was lucky in business and college that I knew the first year in business administration, I was going to go into the HR major, not realizing that most people in, don't know what they want to go into yet. Marketing, finance, accounting, HR. 
Right. And so I knew that and I did it and I did all my time. I took a year off to make money. Then they changed the entire curriculum. So I had to figure out how to get a hodgepodge of it. I finally graduated. And I also knew though that like associations were going to be a really good end to get a job because I learned early on and it helped because I was going into HR that when you see a, an ad for a job on a public site, so whether nowadays it's, it's Indeed or wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And back then, was it in the paper? Was it on... We had a, a Workopolis was the main one back then. Monster. It was, if you see a job on there, it's a last resort. Right. Because, you know, they say the, the, the data code, you know, depending on the study, it's 80 to 90% of jobs are never advertised. And what it's just, they would never advertise a job if they could fill it, you know, necessarily because it costs money. Right, exactly. And once, you put, and once you put the ad out, you get a huge influx of obviously of applications and resumes. And so I joined the HRPAO, it was called at the time, which is now the HRPA, the Human Resources Professional Associations. And I knew they had a job board. So I was a student member at a job board. So I knew all the other students weren't going to see this. Right. And I also volunteered for their conference. And so, and it was intimidating as hell. And I walked into the Sheraton down there, downtown Toronto, the Sheraton that has all the conferences. Yep. And I walked into the ballroom with 4,000 HR professionals and me, you know, ponytailed young Scott walked in and I said, hell no for the lunch. And I turned around and went to McDonald's. I was just so intimidated by it. Like it was just like an overwhelming thing. But the, then, then the next year I was on the committee that helped pick the speakers, which oh, was a goal God. of mine because I wanted to see how the other side worked before I became a speaker on the side that it was going to be booked from. And so that really helped me as well. And I learned then that the main reason they were picking speakers is if somebody on the committee had already seen them and they could vouch for them. The second uh. reason was they had a book. So I knew my key eventually when I wanted to become a professional speaker that the book was going to open the doors for me. Right. So I put that in my, my, in my pocket and went on and then I graduated and I got my job because through HRPO, through the job board, I saw a job opening at Goodwill Industries in, of, in Toronto uh, for HR assistant. And I went and applied and I then also applied for this. It was a brand new cell company called Fido that was <laughs> just about to open. And this is when cell phones were starting to open up. Yeah. And this was, a, this was uh, uh, 98. And uh, I had, so I had interviews with Goodwill and I had interviews with Fido. And for Fido was going to be their, their, their national training person. So right. I was going to go across the country and train people about Fido, the cell phones to train them how to sell it and all that type of stuff, which was really cool because the training part is where my skill set was. My That's passion right. was HR and people, but my skill was in front of a room. And so I was looking at, but I had got advice from one of my profs and I'm telling you that your profs are just the best resource you can possibly have for me at school. If you connect with them and, uh, Lori Kondo, who is a great connection there. She said, just be careful of going because she knew what I wanted to do was in front of the room. She said, be careful. If you specialize out of the gate, out of school, that's all you're going to be qualified to do in three or five years. Right. And she says the problem with training it's usually the first thing to go in a recession. The training budgets, the training amounts, anything that's future ridden that's not directly tied to revenue generation in the, that immediate quarter is kind of going to get cut. So she says, I also know you have a passion for people. So try it. So I had one general thing application and then I had one training one and I did the goodwill interview and they said, Hey, look, um, this assistant position is not going to open for another few months, three or four months. Would you be willing to start and work HR reception? 
Ah, so I was re- HR reception, and then the Fido. I had four, three interviews, and I was waiting for a callback, and it was down to two people. And Goodwill makes me an offer to be HR reception with the promise. Be careful with that, by the way. Yeah, a promise of a different job in a few months, unless you get it in writing. I didn't, and I'm just like I believe my my boss and uh, or my potential boss, and so. Goodwill offers me the job and says, you have 48 hours to decide. Oh, and that's totally fair. Totally get it. Because they want to put somebody else in there if I don't want. Right. And I have to decide, do I wait out Fido? Because they want, and they're not going to tell me for a week. Or do I take this offer? My first job out of college. I took the Goodwill one. Because it was guaranteed. And I right. wanted to get in there. And I wanted to try all of HR. Fido never called back. Wow. To this day. You still haven't called me back. <laughs> and I got the HR assistant position four months in. So I actually got what was promised. So it isn't one of those tales of be careful. It actually worked. Yeah. My boss was honest, Gina. Um, if she's listening to this, what's up? Um, and uh, it was great. She was the best first boss ever to have at a college. And, uh, and working reception allowed me to meet everybody on that floor too. And also made me realize how much power you have as an admin person. Which is why my best friends at every job I had after that was admin and IT. That's my advice, by the way, everybody. Get, make your best friends admin and IT because one, they hate Agreed. people, which, which was makes, makes my heart warm. And two, they have the power, all yeah. the power in organizations. And, I, and that's why I love them. Plus, you know, executives give me the hives half the time. So they're just better people to hang out with. So I got the job at HR. I went from four months of reception and then I did four months as the HR assistant and then I became a generalist. Right. And we hired another guy, Mike, uh, Mike Rezatar, uh, who uh, the two of us were the two generalists and we spit, split Goodwill's territory, Young Street up. Right. So I went from Young Street East all the way to Ottawa, where my stores, and he went Young Street West all the way to Mississauga for his stores. It was the same now stores, a different geographic area. Loved it. Got to do every aspect of HR. Um, but really, the stuff I learned then was what you don't learn in high school, which they should have a class on it. But I just don't know how they have a class about how to deal with pricks. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's all the unwritten yeah. stuff. It's the politics. It's that's the right, games. That's right. And my DNA doesn't work well with that crap. And so, but it was fine because I, my, it was, your direct report is so important. They have so much influence over you and your life and your trajectory. And Gina was the best. And, um, I met somebody there, um, and, uh, uh, we moved in together and she had a son, uh, Aiden, who's now 25 and his bedroom is right over here. Um, <laughs> and, cool. uh, and so we, we met and so, but here's what happened. Here's where I, why I left. Uh, my boss went on mat leave and the person taking over for her was the manager of health and safety and him and I did not get along. And, uh, uh, Aiden, his daycare called and said he had, uh, thinks he had strep throat. Um, and can you come pick him up? And, uh, his mom was, was busy somewhere else. And I said, of course, uh, you know, I didn't have any interviews scheduled that day. I'm an adult. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm going to, I, I, I could see if, yeah, I can go. No problem. Went, picked him up, um, and brought him home and stayed with him. Came back the next day. And this guy who's the new, my new boss is like, so, you know, when you left yesterday, I'm like, yeah, he's like, that stops now. Wow. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what you mean. Like, I'm like, the, the door's not locked. Like I can. I'm free to go at any time I want and uh, I'm an adult and I can, you know, my job was done. I'm getting it done. And my f- performance is good. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I said, are you saying to me that if my, if, if Aiden, if, if the kid is sick, I can't go. 
He's like, well, without my explicit permission, no. And I'm like, okay, thank you. And that afternoon I went and looked at uh, the job board. Wow. And uh, then I got a job at uh, a packaging company called Polyair. They are, uh, they would, they make like things like bubble wrap. They don't make bubble wrap. It's a copyrighted phrase for trademark mm-hmm. phrase for sealed air, but they made the same Durabubble. And so I became their national sales training manager. And who knows how long it would have lasted at Goodwill. I would last, I, I, I could have just, you know, done the whole thing, but it, whatever. It was priority. Yeah. And I got this job and I flew around North America training people how to sell packaging, like bubble wrap. Like if you think what you sell is hard, I sold air. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And my job was training, not our staff, but our distributors. Oh, interesting. So because that product, so it was B2B, right? And we would sell into distributors. And if you've ever been in any type of business like that, it's very important. The chain of distribution, you don't want to go around that. You, you because distributors get your products into marketplaces and stuff. And it's, it's, you know, and I, I really believe that ethics is not a renewable resource. Once you comp- compromise that it's, it's gone in that customer's eyes and that employee's eyes, whoever it is. And it's real hard to bring it back. So when you start going direct to customers, et cetera, and things like that, it can cut off your kneecaps in, in certain industries. Um, uh, so I would fly around and we would host our distributors for two day training schools. And whether they came up to Toronto or I went down to, we had locations uh, like in, in Jersey and California and Texas and Kentucky. And I go down to these plants and train and right. I do my thing. And I was a loyal subject. I would fly on a Saturday for those listening right now, who, especially when you traveled in the, especially in the late nineties and stuff, we do a Saturday night stay over so instead of flying on a Sunday. Cause business flights were usually on a Sunday to get there for the Monday. But if you went Saturday, it was cheaper. So right. I was a good soldier and I was, you know, did the cheap thing. I didn't use my expense account on the road. I would get, you know, Popeye's or Waffle House or something like that. $8 or whatever. Yeah. And I did my, and we got rave reviews. We killed it. It was awesome. And then, so, um, my son Owen was about to be born. This is about two, two years into working there. And I realized like this is a waste of time coming into the office. Yeah. I remember this is, uh, in 2002. Okay, so go back 20 years and I'm having this discussion about work from home or not. And I realized Owen's about to be born. This company did not know what parental leave was. They like, they didn't even know what was a thing, but luckily for me being trained in employment standards and HR, I knew all about this stuff. And I went to the president and I said, Hey, I'm going to be taking parental leave. Um, my son's about to be born. And he's like, what's that? And wow. I said, it's when the a parent can take a leave when the, baby's born. Right. And he's like, can we stop you? And I'm like, no, he also knew my HR background. And, uh, and then I pitched it. I said, look, um, I don't need to be here. Like, um, when my son's born, um, I will fly and I will keep doing all the training that is killing it. That is being asked for by more distributors. No problem. But I don't, there's no reason for me to be 40 hours a week in the office. I don't have an office job. Right. And plus the commute. It was up by Pearson, up by the airport. I'm just like, it doesn't make sense. And I said, or if it's not, it's okay. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm just not going to come back after my parental leave. And he's just, he looks at me, he goes, well, Chris, cause he didn't really know my name and he called me Chris for some <laughs> odd reason. Okay. He's like, well, Chris, I don't think we're ready for this telecommuting thing. Cause we called it telecommuting back then. We're not ready for this telecommuting thing, but we'll see you in four months and enjoy the time off. And I said, thank you. And no, you won't. Wow. And I left and I had like 76 cents in the bank and, um, it didn't matter. I said, I rather 
I rather try to tread water on my own and be home than be gone the majority of the time when my son's born. And I, I'm just not, I'm going to miss it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I did. And it was the best, worst decision I've ever made. I left. Owen was born. I started my own training company. 9-11 happened. Lost the training clients, which is, you know, a, pales in comparison to anything that happened then. But it was a, certainly a disruption in business. And I started doing the thing and I started doing some talks and then um, Owen and Aiden's mom uh, was sick. Um, and so I, could, I had to come off the road. And so I realized, well, I'm going to use the internet to right. get my message out there. And I started making these flash movies that were inspirational. And I made one called The Time Movie. It was the timemovie.com. And I don't know if you remember these, but they were back, especially in the 2000s. They were like uh, stock photography, cheesy text, yeah. and cheesy music in the background. Well, I hate to say it, but most of those was, was my company. Because <laughs> the first one I made went insane. It blew up. Millions of views. Now, back then, millions were like billions today. Right, things exactly. Didn't get millions of views. And I set it up so it would be like a the landing page at the end would mention me in my newsletter and that I'm a speaker. And I got a hundred in the first week, a hundred requests for speaking kits. Wow. And back then you had to put them in a bubble mailer. I had a lot of them from my previous job, but like put them in a mailer, send them out and you had to send them. And I also sold a thousand copies of my CD called relaxation on demand that I just made for fun. And I didn't have any structure around it. And I was screwed. So overwhelmed, I sent out none of the speaker kits and refunded yeah. all thousand CDs because you know how I was making the CDs with my two times CD burner <laughs> in my tower and then using Avery labels to stick a label on the CD itself it would have taken me seven years. I lost my PayPal account. I lost all this type of things. And, it, and I realized then it was not being prepared for success is almost worse than not having success. And it all, it all just broke. But I, what I realized was I was onto something with this video. I couldn't really travel a lot at that time. So I realized I can make this for other people. And I did one teleseminar. Remember teleseminars? You'd phone in on a bridge line. I did one teleseminar for a, a woman called um, Allie Brown who had a list. And it sold and created momentum that I, my company created those videos for six years. Wow. So I had the most successful viral video company on the planet in the 2000s and went nuts. And then I just got, well, I just got comfortable and chill and lazy. I played Xbox for two years. You know, I was, <laughs> I was really good at Halo 3 though. Like I'm telling you, man, I was, ranked, <laughs> I was getting ranked. Like I was ranked in that thing until I threw the controller one day and realized you're a grown man, sir. You need to stop doing this. Yeah, there it is. There's the, there's the chief of self right there. There's the chief <laughs> right. of self. Hang on. Oh, hang on. I, I have to one up you. I don't like one up in you, but give me a second. I, I see your master chief. And so for everybody uh, listening to this right now, there's a visual going on right now. And I raise you all of them. Oh, Halo reach. <laughs> you've, got, you've got two adult nerds nerding out over are, action figures. We are, and we're, we're geeking out. I love it. Yeah. And uh, so and I'll just, I have one more. It's the 20th anniversary. of oh, the he's got it. But, but listen, but uh, you know, it's not a competition. It's no, a, it's a, uh, it's a journey. It's not a competition, but, but I, mine's better. Um, so <laughs> the, uh, I'm kidding. Okay. No. So, um, so the, so this whole thing happened and what I did was um, I just got real, real, uh, content with 
the, the business and the success and was happy just kind of, you know, a lot because I had people that, did, you know, did the programming of it and everything else. Um, and I just chilled, which is great. And then the recession hit in the right. late 2000s and nobody was in the market for $10,000 slideshows anymore. And uh, because the reason why we could charge that much too is not only do we make them from scratch, we guaranteed 50,000 views in the first 30 days. Wow. Because we had a list. We had a list of 300,000 people that wanted to see these things. Right. And so they were actually real views too. Like they would convert. Like my, I made a, that list was made because of the first movie we put out. Right. That 300,000 was all from people watching the video and then, then hitting the landing page. And so that all went away. That died. That killed. And I realized we, I was, we were out of money. We were out of everything. I went, to, I went bankrupt. Totally. Wow. And I, uh, I realized, you know what? No, there, there's something about what's happening on the internet. There's something about going on. Like I've been on the internet since 94 and haven't logged off. I love so much about it. And I realized, you know what? There's a power happening right now because of, I used to use forums a lot, a lot of forums, a lot of um, message boards, um, IRC chat, things like that. These digital communities. And I'm like, you know what? There's more to this. And I, I, I know I can make it work. So I decided to join this little site called Twitter and wanted to, I, I joined it like a lot of people in business. I joined it in April, uh, January 08. Yeah. And I look, went on it and I'm just like, this is dumb. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you had this for lunch. Oh, whatever. I did the marketing guy move. It's not right. for me. And then I realized, look, I got nothing else to do. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give this 30 days because it's pithy. It's the way I write. I write hooks. I write, yeah. little, you know, I write, I, I speak in one-liners a lot. That's pretty much my contribution to a lot of the books. Allison writes them and I just give one line and I run away because <laughs> of my brain. And, uh, uh, so I decided, okay, I'm going to join. And I lived on Twitter for 30 days. And I said, look, I'm going to live on it. Like, I mean, yeah. night and day, and I'm going to see if it's got the momentum I want. And I went from 1200 followers to 10,000 in that month. Wow. I tweeted 7,000 times wow. in that 30 days. People are like, what? That's crazy. I'm like, how many times do you text? Like it, it adds up real quick. Yeah. And, and, but the thing was 80% of those tweets were replies. Oh, wow. And so okay. when I started, um, and this is for actually any site still today, when I started 80, those 80% replies too were active, meaning I, I was replying to somebody else, not to, they weren't talking to me. Yeah. Well, I was reacting to somebody else's tweet. I was starting conversations with them versus saying what it was five years later when I had, when I was huge on Twitter, my 80, I was still at 85% replies, but those were reactive replies. Right, right, right. So I was replying to people talking to me. Right. So that's when it flipped. So I was realizing that if you want that momentum in anything in social media, you're going to be the one giving out. And we called it, it's in the books. We talked about it a lot. It's called, we call it your social currency. So it's like you have to give your social currency. You have to invest your social currency until you with, want to withdraw something. Right. And if you go onto Twitter and just say, well, nobody's saying anything to me. Nobody's replying to my stuff. It's like going to the bank and saying, I'd like to open an account and please give me five grand. You got to right. put stuff in. You got to be able to. And that's where it really made sense for us and really worked. And then it, it just went crazy. And I became the top Canadian on Twitter and then one of the, you know, the top three in North America. Right. And it was just, it was, and really, again, it was because of luck, timing, skill, effort, and others. Right. All those things came into play. The effort I had done with online communities, the eight years leading up to that, 
the timing and the luck of Twitter just being at that certain point, yeah. the effort that I put in on Twitter itself, other people who we all, we, I still talk to some of those people today that I talked to in the late 2000s on Twitter because right. it, it felt like cheers. You, you showed up, you're like, everybody like, Hey, it's God. And it was just, it was a different vibe. And I'm not saying that Twitter now is, is something you don't, it won't work. Well, it's just a different type of platform at this point, or yeah. I'm using it differently. Right. Sure. Because a lot of times people are like, well, nobody's talking to me. I'm like, are you talking to people? Are you doing what you want people to do for you? Right. right. It's this hypocritical type of stuff too. And it blew up. And then I knew because of all the research I'd done over the decade as well was way back. Remember way back there, it was a book I needed, right. To get on stage. Right. right. Well, then, so then I looked at, was it take to get a book? And the, if you want to go through the traditional publishing ways, the best way to get a book deals for the publisher and anything in business, by the way, is for them to come to you. Right. right. And you have the leverage. So I learned and talked and, and read a bunch of stuff and it was, well, if you make enough noise online, eventually publishers need new authors, new books all the time, which is the ridiculous thing of, of when people say, why am I going to write a book? There's 10,000 coming out a year. I'm like, why do you think they keep putting out that many a year? Cause people keep buying them. Right. We always want the new book, the new thing, the new, whatever. So I made my noise. And then one day the phone rings <laughs> and it's Shannon Vargo, who's the editor at Wiley still is today and still is our editor. She called and how she found me was what happens. And I learned it when becoming an author, your editor will go, Hey, okay, great. Anyway, um, do you have any ideas or names of people that you think are up and coming? Yeah. And so what happened was people like Chris Brogan and people like that mentioned my name. And so then they called and I remember I was, I was two blocks away from here in the parking lot of the Rabba down the street <laughs> from me and the phone rings and she goes, Hey, it's Shannon Vargo from why? She goes, I want to know why haven't you written a book yet? And I'm like, hi Shannon. I'm wondering why you haven't offered me a book deal yet. I love that. And she goes, touche. And then we started talking and we got the offer for the first, uh, for unmarketing, which was great because again, I was bankrupt, was broke. And it was just like, cool. 15 grand advance. Yes, please. Yeah. And so I'm on there. I get this deal. It's going to be unmarketing. I picked the name on marketing for the company years before because one of the reasons was I thought it would look great on a book cover. I thought oh, of a brown paper bag with an unstamp on it. I visited like 10 years before that. And so I'm writing it and I'm on Twitter as well. I'm doing my thing. I was like DJ Twitterlicious at night. I'm using Blip <laughs> FM and Groove Shark to play songs for everybody. Like Rob Bass, DJ Easy Rock, you know, Joy and Pain or It Takes Two. Either one is fine. And you're going through all these things. making great. I made a lot of friends with a lot of moms. Uh, because in the evening, like oh, I was a single, I was a single dad at the time, so it was like it was just me and a lot of moms, and we were just spinning old music and hanging out because we put the kids to bed. Yeah, and then I met uh, somebody called Nummies Bras on Twitter, who was, and I looked it up, and part of those groups, and I looked, and Nummies Bras is a, like maternity lingerie company. I'm like, well, okay then. And we started talking, and I was doing like website reviews for people at the time, and I put it out there, and and she's like, hey, would you review mine? I'm like, sure. And she was, I found out she was in Burlington, the town next to me. Right. And I'm like, why don't we meet up at a coffee place and I'll go over the whole thing for you. And I got to the coffee place on the patio and I went online to the Wi-Fi, and it blocked her site. They're like, it's pornography. And I'm like, oh, well, it's maternity lingerie. Right? So I guess that makes sense. She gets there onto the patio. She walks out in the patio and I'm like, damn it. I'm going to marry her. Oh, wow. And uh, it's our nine year anniversary this December. Congrats. So she walks out. We sit there for eight hours talking about just everything, everything and anything except her website. And, it, and then we start talking and then we exchange Blackberry, like BBM numbers. 
yeah. back in the day. <laughs> That's right. Right. And we were chat and I just, she's mentioned, I mentioned the book and she's like, how's it going? And I'm like, well, I'm screwed. It's due in 18 days. And I just started because you know, me and how this stuff works. Um, and she's like, oh, wow. And I had just a hob goblin of 30,000 ridiculous words that were just not in any order crazy. And she's like, let me have to take a look at it. What I didn't know is she was an incredible writer. Right. And so she pulled a bunch of the book out of me and added it and created the book that you see today, which is on marketing, which was the 60,000 words of amazing. And she wrote it in my voice. I wanted to do short chapters with sarcastic footnotes um, because, you know, business books didn't do that. Right. That's, that's how I talk. Uh, like sarcasm is my first language. English yeah. is my second. Like that's how I, I play. And I read, uh, well, a basketball. I read Bill Simmons' book, The Book of Basketball. And I Great noticed book. he had all those sarcastic footnotes. And that reading that gave my mind like permission to do that myself. Right. His footnotes were always like, you know, well, how they're supposed to be, right? You're citing your work. You're doing these type of things. And I'm like, no, that's a great humor move. I loved it. And so is Bill Simmons is the reason why there's footnotes in every book we've got. Very I was cool. reading the book of basketball and um, yeah, and phenomenal book. And, uh, and so she helped it. We put it in there and I put in June that year, 2010, in June, I said this fall on marketing coming out, I sent one tweet on uh, marketing's coming out. Do you want to stop on the unbook tour? Hundred books, flight and hotel. Thirty cities ended up doing it. Wow! Half of them were either AMA chapters, American Marketing Association chapters, because those chapters, by the way, are always looking. Any kind of chapter that has any association that has regional chapters, especially, yeah, they're always looking for people to come talk, especially right. people with books. So if you're listening right now and that's going to be your thing one day or it is your thing now, that's a huge in of getting in there. They don't have a budget usually, but they have a budget that could get a hundred books because they sell tickets, 25 bucks a piece. So half were AMA or social media club locations. And the other half, this is my favorite part. The other half were people who really pretty much never run an event in their life. Oh, wow. But they were so part of the community that we created on Twitter for on marketing that they just said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but I have to do it. Yeah. I did one of the venues was a car dealership in Edmonton after hours. <laughs> one was the, uh, the, the, the duck walk theater in St. Louis, Chuck Berry's club. And I got to stand on his freaking stage wow. and did a talk there. I did a loft space in Nashville. I did like all these crazy different things. Yeah. It was all because people said that we're part of your community. We want this to work. And that helped the book get on, you know, the a global mail bestseller, these type of things. And to be honest with you right now, Peter, to be 400% honest, I hadn't stopped speaking since. That 30 city, 10 week unbook tour I did, yeah, which was the rule was no bookstores. Not that I, I love bookstores. I especially love indie bookstores. But that the fact is if you just go to a store and sit there, nobody's showing up, right? If right. you ever walked into Indigo or Chapters or Barnes and Noble or anybody listening to this, you walk in and, some, and an author you don't know is sitting there with books. It's kind of sad. Yeah. And usually it's just like, you know, the, they're just telling people where the bathroom is or where the, you know, the latest copy of 50 shades of gray or something is for people. Right. So I didn't want to do that. And I also knew though, my goal here was speaking. Right. Right. It wasn't the plan is to be an author for six books or right? it was to get me on stage. So I, well, and I re I learned the two things the t the, the, the actual two reasons you get booked. The third one is a book. That's the one I could get a hold of. But the first two reasons you get booked to speak is somebody saw you speak somewhere else. And, uh, or the second reason was somebody else saw you speak somewhere else and that person trusts that. So it's either referral or direct experience. Right. But I couldn't get, I didn't have either of those two things. First, it was the book was going to start that and get the other two. And so I did 30 cities in 10 weeks, created a crazy buzz. Right. 
And I was also speaking on a topic that was keynote worthy at the time, which at the time was social media because it was that latest kind of thing. And honestly, I did the 30 cities, 10 weeks. You know, it was terrible because I wasn't making any money. I was just building the book up, making money for the publisher. That's the deal. But after that, that's when the gig requests started coming in. And honestly, it haven't stopped since until COVID hit. Right. And yada, yada, yada. Here we are. Six books, 300 episodes of our show we did together, 530 plus keynotes now since 2010. And honestly, 12-year-old me would be real damn impressed right now. Real happy. And that's one of the things too. And I have to, I really have to say this because I think it's really important for, at least for me, is achieving your dream is one thing, but achieving your dream and realizing it at the time yeah. is, is mind-blowing. It's because it keeps you humble to part of it saying, this is all I ever wanted, which stops me from doing the endless pursuit of more. Right. You know, that thing where you, you finally get the car you always wanted. Now you want the new model. You finally, you know, if anybody can afford it these days, a fucking house. And then you realize <laughs> oh, I want a bigger one or I want a better one. And it's this right. endless pursuit of more. We never stop at the, at the, at the rest stops to say where we come and looking back and saying, yeah, look, but look where we've come. And I just don't have that. I remember being in Germany, which is mind blowing itself that I was in Frankfurt being paid to be in Frankfurt to speak at a conference. And Allison was there with me and uh, we, we met another speaker there that was actually from Canada, from Vancouver. And we were at like the, the night before the mixer for the event. And yeah. I don't like, I don't go to them usually, but you know, this is overseas and big, you know, it's big money. And so I went and we're schmoozing and I saw the other speaker and Allison and I went, it's like, you want to get out of here? Like it's just so crowded, so crazy. So we like, yeah, we just went on a patio and did the typical German tourist move. We had steins of beer yeah. and schnitzel and we were talking and I had just hit um, one of those kind of milestones in speaking, which is I, I did a million dollars in bookings in, in a year and it was a big deal and wow. it was very cool. And he's just like, oh, and he's like, and, he, and he's a startup type of guy. And he's like, wow, what's next? And he puts his arm up like this. And he's like, so what's next? And I just took his arm and I just pushed it so it was flat. And I said, that, that is next for me. Yeah. This is what I want to do. And this is, this was uh, eight years ago. I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. That's so powerful. And he's looking, but, and for, he's just like, but no, but like, what's your next challenge? I'm like, I don't, I don't look for challenges. I don't encourage challenges. Life brings enough challenges at his life is hard as hell. And I'm privileged by the way, like on every level. And it's hard for, for us. I can't imagine what it's like for so many other people. And I'm trying to imagine that more these days because of a lot of things like that. And for me, it's just like, look, I'd rather have my life the way it certainly is. So when those, no, no matter what challenges will come, that I can deal with those too. We only have so much mental energy we have i have a lot less now than i had before yeah. covid i was just like i don't i don't have a i don't have a deep well right now of that emotion just to pull from you know that thing you just you just it's that resiliency type of thing or whatever yeah. it is and i'm like oh, i'm all i'm all resilienced out your entire career journey as i sat there just completely enthralled um, it read so many things about it resonate with me so deeply. And I, I'll circle back to that idea of, you know, turning that, that line from a diagonal to a flat line a little yeah. bit later, as they talk about like the idea of balance. But 
when you start at the beginning and, you know, when you very early on found that you just were confident at speaking, right? Yeah. I think I had a very similar experience as a kid where it always just kind of came naturally to me. I was a very, I'm six foot three. I've been six foot two, three since I was like 11 years old. Yeah. So I was just a big person and personality out of the gate, right? Like I always joke, I say I walked out of my mom, right? I was a big <laughs> dude. And so like, but for me speaking and being in an audience or a crowd, like it just came naturally. But I found for me, what it was, was less about wanting to speak initially and more about when I found myself passionate about something, Yeah, I wanted other people to care. And I can't yeah. explain why, yeah. whether it's video games, sports, cars, whatever. Now in my career, you know, parts of digital business transformation or data or whatever it is, yeah. I just want the other person I'm speaking to uh, to care about it as much as I do. And I don't, I can't really make sense of that. But did you find something similar across your passions to do with HR as you were building yourself up in your early career? Yeah, it's interesting for me for coming from the speaking side of it too, where I found it's a bad word these days, but I think passion's contagious. Interesting. And, and I think that when and it, you can see it in in talks on stage for me is that when the audience gets into it, I, it it's like it's symbiotic right we go back and forth it's like the more they get into it the more i get into it the more i get into it the more they get into it right and it's it's a certain style of speaking but it's just i, I think just passion is popular and i think passion is lacking a lot now where we kind of crap on a lot of passions and we we and i i was one of the things i say on stage these days is 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 uh, just just watch your mouth around people and their passions. Like don't belittle them. Don't right. rip on them. Don't, if you, if your thing is, if, if, if you like knitting, yeah, right. Then, 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 then do it up. Right. If you like comic book statues, awesome. If you like yeah. thing, if you play Xbox, do your thing. If you like, you know, if it's, it's, a, it's so crazy. And I go up and, t and speak to like, I, I did one in Texas a few months ago to a bunch of executives. And I'm just like, and I talked about gaming. And they're kind of right. laughing. They're just laughing at it. And then I showed them a stadium of people watching League of Legends. Exactly. Exactly. 15,000 people in there watching and the, and the, or World of Warcraft and the amount of money it brings in. And I'm like, but, and I said, passion has profit in it. But the reason why I don't want to talk about this very much is because I don't want you profiting from it. Interesting. Right. Because the reason you should, and it's just like when I talk today. So we're, a lot of the talks we do today, and that's actually going to be the next and probably last book that Allison will work on is Unleadership. It's one of the oh. things I talk about with this is like, I've been doing talks and work and trying to get people to pe treat people well for my whole right. career. I did talks when I was 24 talking about how work shouldn't be your whole life, but nobody listened to that when I was 24. I'm still <laughs> right. saying it. I'm still saying it at 47 and a lot of people don't want to listen. So when we argue about like this, you know, working from home or back to the office and all this, I just looked at, I look at people. I'm just like, do you work with adults? And if you do, then they can make their own choice. Exactly. Yeah, well, it's our culture. It's so, well, if it is good, then they will choose to come back. And if they don't, maybe your vision is not the same. And I get really bent out of shape because treating people well right now in this current state of economic affairs in the world, it's actually good for business. And I, yeah. hate, I hate that partially because I don't want you treating people better or well or paying them a living wage or whatever it's going to be because it's good for your spreadsheet. Yeah. And that's so tough. And, and I think maybe we jump to the, to that topic now, just because, you know, so progressive in your thinking in the early two thousands around, you know, call it telecommuting yeah. then, but working remotely now, you know, I think if anything in the last three years have proven obviously is that it's possible. Now we were all forced into it very suddenly. So a lot of that, you know, presented 
the reality that we had to overwork because our every aspect of our lives had not adjusted to this being a new norm, right? But now as it has become that, you know, there's a lot of discussion around, well, if an organization has X number of offices, right, we, we have to keep them on some level, let's say, then, well, we have to get our people back in. Otherwise, the investment makes no sense. There's no yeah. ROI. Which if is we're going to get rid the, of it. The funniest thing with that, sorry, sorry for interrupting you on that. I, I, I did, two weeks ago, I sat in a boardroom with an outgoing and incoming CEO and yeah. they asked me because I was about to do a talk for them, but they're like, they're just like outside of the talk. Can we, can we just ask you about this type of stuff? Like the working from home versus not, and I'm just like, uh, uh, you know, every, everything most people are saying, you're just lying. We've, we, we it took a pandemic to force yeah. it to happen because if it didn't, you'd still be sitting there saying, oh, it's not the same. It's not this. It's, it's all crap. It's all, yeah. it's either you're lying to yourself or you're lying to others. One, you're just, one, you've figured it out. And it, it, a lot of this stuff for me comes down to its control and, and, and distrust. That I don't think I, I said you you send somebody through seven interviews you do all these checks to find the best of the best of the best within the time right. and money constraints you have you find them you get them and then you don't trust them yeah I don't understand well and I one 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 CEO there was like well but uh, it's it's the it's the hallway chatter that you really don't get you know it's that those conversations that I just really enjoy and I'm just like so you just want people around the hallway so you can talk to them and I said because <laughs> you're walking around an organization as a CEO. It, you understand that's different than somebody else walking in. Correct? 100%. And, and I said this one line to him. I said, you have no idea what it's like to work for you. Right. And he just looked at me. He just looked at me. And I said, don't worry. That's a slide in my talk. So I'm not talking yeah. about you. And because I looked at him, I said, because I don't know you. So I don't actually, I'm not talking about you specifically. And if you're feeling any defensiveness right now, well, calculate that for a minute and figure that out. Cause I don't know you. I don't know what right. type of person you are. And then I talked to some other people at the organization and he's like, yeah, he never stops talking. And I can't, <laughs> I can't get anything done. You don't wow. know what it's like to work for you. So stop right. assuming it and stop assuming, you know, how other people like to work and back to the property issue about having, but you have multiple locations and buildings. Well, that sounds like a you problem, doesn't it? Right. That sounds like a business issue that leadership needs to handle. Because y'all got no problem making changes when it's advantageous to you or a stockholder. It sounds Absolutely. like, a, but it sounds like a you issue because there is no reason. Or I have an idea. Why don't you turn some of that commercial space into affordable housing? But you know, we won't get into that. That's a whole nother level of stuff. Fair. But, but looking at that stuff, it's just like, no, you, you're talking out of your ass with this stuff. I'm a grown adult. I know where I can work well and where I don't work as well. And I also know, by the way, just because I believe in people not having to work in the office doesn't mean that everybody works best that way. I totally get it. Some right. people are a people person and they feed off of others. Some teams love coming in together, but those are few and far between. Mostly right. it's team leaders who want their team to come in together and one or two of them like it and two or three are silent about it because they don't want to say anything because they're told to rock the boat. And blah, 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 blah. what I would give advice for is that if you are newer to an industry and starting and you want to climb and you want to climb as rapidly as possible, then I would go into the op. Right, exactly. And, I, and, and I've certainly benefited from that myself, right? right. I, in my early career, having exposure to the two most senior leaders in my capability Huge. and my company in my office on behalf of North America made an enormous difference. And even now you described, you know, people, people who like to be in person. I'm one of those people, but I right. have two young kids now and I actually hugely appreciate the flexibility of waking up one morning and say, there's no way I'm getting into the office. Right. I got way too much of this family stuff going on today. 
but I'm still going to get all my work done. Yeah. And having that flexibility is an incredibly powerful thing that even now as somebody who loved being around everybody and that energy, right? I, I massively appreciate the flexibility. Yeah. I think that so is like the biggest piece. So why can't we, so that's what I mean. Why can't companies be like that? Exactly. Like simply yeah. you choose. And by the way, oh, this morning you can choose, right? If something hits the fan, if you have two young kids, right? You like the story I told you with strep throat, right? right. I, exactly. left, I left the industry based on that person, right? Because of that inflexibleness of it. It's a power trip part of the time. And if you right. don't know, you don't think you're doing it, that's what it is. You yeah. want to have domain over people. And what a lot of people want is fealty. Right. You are, you are doing, this is the job. And, and also some people say it because they had to. Right. Right. They had to walk uphill both ways to work in snow. Right. right? They had to do these type of things. And the, the, the point is, if you don't, if you're not letting them choose, then what are you saying? Yeah, you're being directive and you're administrating, you know, what you want. And, and, and I think that's so powerful. And I want to zero in on that moment you described around the piece with strep throat, because I think, you know, that's a very specific example where, where it obviously hit home because it was your child. But just in general, I think people often are put in situations where they're forced into a decision that they definitely wouldn't make a certain way, right. but out of their circumstances, out of exactly. necessity, they comply, but you didn't. And that was a, that's a really powerful thing. And I, I, I want to understand how, what was the mental process behind making that decision or being able to react that way and stand up for yourself and know that, you know, regardless of what the outcome is here, I'm making the decision that's right for me and, and my family. Yeah. That's, that's the thing a lot of people struggle with and don't have the, the confidence to do. Well, look at that. Look at. So look at present day right now first and look at who the two demographics that are leaving the workforce or not coming to it right now are boomers. They're leaving en masse. Right. I think Canada's came out and said 200,000 more than, than expected took early retirement or retired outright from jobs and Gen, Gen Z realizing that the we've been kind of told a, a, a semi lie for the past, you know, 30 years or so. Go to school, get good grades, work, mm -hmm. be loyal. We'll be loyal to you. No. It changed in the 80s, right? We started seeing our parents get laid off. We're like, wait, what? Why? Right. I didn't, like I live in Oakville, get a job at the Ford plant for life. IBM down the street, no problem. Xerox down the street from there, no problem. Lifetime, blue chip. We call them blue chip. Right. Not anymore. So why do we keep saying that? So the youngest and the oldest are both leaving. So how does that leave? Well, it leaves uh, us <laughs> in the middle. Right. <laughs> exactly. And that, but, and that one of the things though, and, and employ, a lot of employers know this, is you're handcuffed. Mortgage car payment, this, that, or now, you know, nowadays, it, it, you know, it was more affordable to buy a financial ratio. And this is as far down I'll go with this. This is not my expertise, but much smarter people than me that I read. Your financial ratio to be able to purchase a home was better in the, um, in the Great Depression than it is today, 2022. Right. Right. And it's just like, it, that scares the heck out of me. And I own a house. That's the thing. It's, it scares the heck of a lot of other, for a lot of other people and our kids and the next generation, they're just like, well, if I'm not going to get it, screw it. And so you have this middle group who has too many commitments, but also are midstream in their career run. Right. And they've worked this far to it. And it's a tough spot. But if we rewind back then to where it was, I was young, right? I'd gone to college. I was young. I was going there. And it was the point of my contrarianness and my anger towards authority was stronger than right. my financial responsibility. In my That's brain. an interesting intersection. Yeah, so this, was, this was not something that, because none of this makes me look good. 
in hindsight, great. I look great right now. It's like great story. I'm a storyteller. So it works so well that this is the way it worked. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that was a, that was an irresponsible thing for me to do financially. And I understand that and I get it. And I have the uh, debts to prove it back then and the, <laughs> right. and the line of credit to prove it. It doesn't, it didn't, the point was I'm not spending another minute away from family here when that's how their viewpoint is and I'll figure it out. Um, and so during that, t- I didn't even mention, sorry, after Paul here, when I left and I went on parental leave, I then ended up teaching 12 hours a week at Sheridan for six years. Oh, wow. Because Lori Kondo, the person that told me to go general, my, one of my profs, those profs who I said, you're, they're your best contacts. Those are the people who vouched for me to get the job at the college. Right. No interview, no reference checks. Wow. Somebody on the inside vouches for you. That's another that's way it. of getting that job, right? Really right. is. And that's where, so if you are in school right now, are you going to go back to school and you have a placement, a co-op or an internship type of thing? Understand the profs in that program are the ones who can get you the best ones because they know the people in the industry. That's Aiden right now. Our oldest works now at Dine Alone Records in downtown Toronto. Um, Alexis on Fire's label and City and Color. Yeah. And he did it because he got a co-op placement through Humber. And that's because his prof got it for him. So it's always a member, luck, timing, effort, skill, and others. Yeah, I, I love the intersection of those things. But even with the, with the example of, of when you left that organization, I think, yeah, it, of course, is an extreme one. And, and you can apply those lens on it to identify the risk. But it's still so applicable for folks today that sometimes you simply need to deprioritize some of the factors that are restraining you from making yeah. the decision. If it is, in fact the right ethical and kind of moral decision for you yeah. and your family. And, and then and the, I want to give you, sorry, I want to give you the emotional side of it though, too, because it was financially and spreadsheet wise, it was not, but the emotional decision is what drove it. Right. Which was, I remember saying to myself then uh, vividly, I'm not going to sing cats in the cradle 15 years from now. It right. was that whole, and it, of course I was listening to the ugly kid Joe version of cats in the cradle at the time, <laughs> but still, still a great rendition of it. But it was simply, I'm, I'm not going to be away this whole time. And even yeah. when I became a professional speaker and the kids got a bit older, I did, I would do 60 gigs a year. And people are like, wow, it's a lot of time on the road. I'm like, yeah, it's about 120 to 140 days a year on the road, but I'm home for 200 days a year. And here's yeah. the thing. I don't consult. I don't have an agency. Right. I don't do anything else except you know, things like this, but I don't do anything else. Yeah. And that was the point. And everybody else, I'm one of the few speakers in the professional speaking industry that only does keynotes. And that's it. There's no, I'm not, there's no spin on stage. I want to sell something. There is no training package. And there is no, I don't, I just, I come and do a keynote and I go home. I think that's, uh, so, such I'm, a, so I'm a father at home for over 200 days a year. I'm home. Exactly. All, and the off season for speaking, July, August, and December. Amazing. So I'm, I've been home every year, July, almost all July and August. And if I have a gig in the summer, I would take the kids with me. Right. And so exactly. it's a wonderful balance. You need that it's somewhere in there where you got to balance it in your brain. So 160 days away, 200, not only home, but also tuned in. Yeah. Which is, I think the value of that is incredible. And I've witnessed it in my own life. I, I mentioned to you, I had two young kids. I yeah. have a four-year-old daughter and a 19-month-old daughter. So the four-year-old daughter... I had six weeks parental leave when she was born. I was around. She didn't even know I was I existed, <laughs> right? And then I went away and she was with her mom for the balance of that year. And there's a material difference between the relationship I formed with her early on when mm. she was a cognitive human yeah. to, to the one with my younger one where I, during the pandemic, she was born and I could walk out between every single meeting, 
Yeah. And she'd be there on the carpet in the yeah. basement next to my office. Yeah. And I'd lie down, I'd roll around with her, I'd play with her. And there's a material difference in the level of relationship I have with her at two or closing on two that I did with my first one. And that has completely shifted my paradigm and like point of reference of like yeah. what it means to be present and focused and available to your kids. And so the balance you just described, I've heard it said before that, you know, you have to get comfortable with being uh, ba- find balance and being out of balance. And yeah. you just described that you go yeah. to one extreme yeah. when you're focused and working, but then you go to another when you're home and present right. and you find balance and being out of balance at times. That's really powerful. I and, feel like yeah. that's something a lot of people can strive to achieve in their own lives. And part of that was also looking at where my time was being spent. Right. And, and t- almost auditing that and like, uh, and looking at it saying, all right, where do I, and it's not even, Sometimes it's, it's, I always look at it like work, which is the amount of time you're at work has no equation necessarily based on how productive you are or how talented you are. Right. Time is simply time. Right. And, and so some people can take eight hours to do something and somebody else can finish it in an hour. So it's like, I think it's a, it's a kind of a red herring a lot of times too. Yeah. Um, that people are like, Oh, this guy comes in early, stays late. I'm just like, well, well, mm. Are they, or they, or they might hate their home. You know, it's like, doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't matter whether, or, <laughs> right. or they, or the, and this is one of my problem with leaders is that whatever you're doing, the people below you who are trying to climb that ladder thinks whatever you're doing is the key to getting to where you are. Right. Exactly. So you set that tone, right? So if you're thinking you're all contacting all your people on the weekends and at night and all this type of stuff, you're setting the tone to say, this is how you get to me, to my level. Right. And for me, it was this, that, that balance of it. but. You have to understand, though, that when I was traveling with the packaging company, and we had Aiden was the one kid here and stuff. It was it's I'd come home when I was at home, and I'd get home at six thirty or so, and I'd fall asleep on the couch with dinner like on my lap, and Aiden there watching watching Power Rangers or something like that. And it was a it, and it's a slog. And sometimes right. the only time you've got with your kids is it feels like ten minutes. Yeah, and it was just for me trying to remember it. I didn't always remember it, and when I did, it was you know, make whatever the time this is engaged, phone yeah. down, phone away, talking to them. And I realized even now where I'm at in my career in 47, it was saying not at what is necessarily taking my time, like chunks of hours, but it's what's taking my emotion. Right. Because I could go onto Facebook then for five minutes, but it would change my mood for five hours. Right. In a bad way when things were going crazy and starting getting really bad and I looked at it, I'm like, but I have to be on here. This is part of what I talk about and all this type of stuff. And then one day I said, no. And I deleted my Facebook, deleted the unmarketing page. I had 75,000 followers on it or fans walked away. And I said, this is probably the worst thing for my mental health is, is here. And it, because it will trigger me. And I told you, I have a lower depth. I don't have a much emotional depth to things at this point. Yeah. I know it can get me going real quick. And so I just left. And I'm telling you, it's been glorious. That's, it's been glor. I have I I have not been on it since they call. Is it Meta? Is it called Meta yeah, now? I think that's right. I'm social media guy, right? Unmar- like I was all this stuff. I was because of social media for me. That's I right. I haven't been on to Facebook since they call it Meta. I don't know what the the virtual world looks like. Right. I have never seen an actual thing. I've never walked into it. Nor do I ever want to. Right. And that was my world. I'm about to probably walk off Twitter. I still have Instagram just because, you know, I like to see pictures and it's the only way I keep in touch with anybody outside of that. And then I love LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn has now turned into an actual real content slash community and social place. So that's the only place I spend my time, but not a lot of it. 
I don't post, if right. you look on there, I don't post a heck of a lot. Um, most things I do on there is amplify other things, whether people are looking for jobs or causes I support and, and put yeah. it out there. But, you know, I feel certainly semi-retired from a lot of the BS. You know, but even that day. Facebook decision is still consistent with your earlier decision yeah. in your life. And it's like you're prioritizing that emotional aspect yeah. of your being. Yeah. And I think, again, a lot of people fail to have the confidence to, to, to do it. Even and, and some people fail to realize when there's a necessary decision to, yeah. be, to be made. So, so realizing that and then acting on it, I mean, the freedom oozes out of your voice. You speak with a levity and, and, a, and a lightness in spite of the fact that we're talking about some heavy topics yeah. that I really admire because you, you've made decisions that you're incredibly confident in that have unlocked certain emotional freedom. And, and it, it comes out through your voice as you speak. Like there's no question you. that, that you, you have no regrets on decisions you've made. Well, I, I think, I mean, I want to, I want to stay far away from trying to sound like a, some kind of motivational speaker or anything, but right. I think, I think regrets are real, are real toxic. You know, it's real hard to, I think, I think wisdom is time plus mistakes. I honestly do. Oh, interesting. And I think that if we don't learn from the mistakes, then they truly are. And I think regret is thinking something was a mistake. Right. And that's the problem is we don't, use those mistakes to benefit ourselves or others, then that's where regret is. So I take my mistakes and I use them as teachable moments. I use the mistakes and I say, where did they go from here? Where can I go from there? And what did I get out of it? And that's what, you yeah. know, you can do that in an organization too. You can use that in a team too. Yeah. Uh, because that's, that's literally what experience means. It means you've effed 100%. up. You effed up enough that you're not going to f up again on your dime now because I've already done it at this company. Right, that's, exactly. And that's when I talk about generations and younger. And I really think there's a shift now with disruption. And disruption to us is change without time to resist it. And that a younger demographic who's grown up on disruption, and an older demographic that has the wisdom of ages. You know that you just get through age. Right? There's a wonderful cohesion that can happen, but rarely does because it right. is not today is not like it was ten years ago or twenty years ago or even two years ago. And the problem is when you get older in an industry and you're so busy climbing the ladder with the meeting and the schmoozing and the ass kissing and all this type of stuff, you're not looking at the industry for the most part. You're not learning the new things and the technologies because you're so busy and so overwhelmed. And the higher you climb, the more meetings, the more pressure, the more expectations. When do you have time to be curious? Right. You have no time to be curious. And then some young person comes into or new person to the industry and you come in and they have a whole wealth of knowledge that you don't. Instead of saying, tell me about this stuff, show me this stuff, get me as passionate as you are about the stuff. What we say is that's not for us. What we say is that's not what we do here. What we say is this is actually the way we always do it, even though the tools, the landscape and the freaking weather has changed. Yeah. You still walk out with the same branded umbrella and saying, well, this is how it is. It's not. Right. If you hire people, and especially if you hire them for their brain, let them use it. I think the only way towards innovation is through insubordination. Oh, interesting. Because I think it's in it, we call it innovation. If we do it, we call it disruption if so it happens to us. Right. And part of that, instead of being disruptive, being innovative, is allowing the voices and the minds in your company to speak up. Because the farther away you are from the actual front line, whether that's the production line or the service line or whatever that is to whoever the customer is, 
less you understand about the culture of the company and how the ins and outs work. And you can't because you only have so much time in the day. But I hate it when leaders, especially the higher up you go, talk about the culture of the company. You don't know jack about the culture of the company. You're the CEO. You know who knows about the pure culture? The lowest person on the org chart. Exactly. Ask them about the culture. Right. The, the, the problem is you haven't. Right. And it, I think that's incredibly powerful. And even circling back to, to an earlier comment in this, in this uh, thread that we touched on, this idea of, you know, wisdom is time plus mistakes. I think that is a beautiful reinterpretation of, you know, a, a something of just experimentation, right? A, any industry, A-B testing in science, in technology, in consulting, right? The whole idea of test and learn, learn from mistakes, fail forwards, right? Uh, be agile, Good is better than perfect. Like all these ideas are coming in and really saying the same thing. That like ship it. You, yeah, all those ones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Attempt, try, test, learn from mistakes, appreciate the successes, right? And that packaging, wisdom is time plus mistakes, I think is really beautiful because it helps extrapolate the same type of thinking, but apply it out of the work context and into kind of a life context. Right. And that often I think hits home for people in maybe a more powerful way. But, you know, I'm sure that that, same type of approach it must have extrapolated to your speaking career, which I want to kind of Huge, pivot yeah. to now. Um, how have, you know, aside from obviously I could spend hours asking you questions on how you've <laughs> managed to get into then scale your speaking, which you've touched on a bit, but you mentioned that conversation you had in Germany where instead of, you know, continuing to think of the next thing and expanding yeah. your business, you're simply going to focus and stay where you are because you've reached it and you achieved it. But even yeah. as you said now, you don't consult. You don't have an agency. No. You speak. And it's what you've always wanted to do. Yep. How do you stay in that lane and, and, and you know, move aside those temptations? It's easy to get tempted by all yeah, the other of course, stuff. Of course. And I think for me, the main thing is my, my speaking is based on what I'm passionate about and also what the market wants. There's a, there's ah. a, there's a crossroad of that. Right. And so it's not about not looking around and seeing what's next. It's about that. I, I take my curiosity and say, where, where is it? So I, I started in social media and then I shifted to disruption when I felt that social media was becoming a concurrent topic, not a keynote topic. Right. We're becoming a how to versus a what is. And so then I started going more into, so I said, okay, what do I like? What did I really like about social part of that too? And it was disruption. We were, we used to talk about a lot of companies that were disrupting. I'm like, this is actually more, and disruption was a thing that was being asked for. And I'm like, this is, I I am a literal disruptor. That's what I do. So we focused more on that. And then once, especially when COVID hit and everything else, and I started getting gray hair in my beard, I'm like, I can talk about about leadership now. I have gray in my beard. I can do this. But the thing is though, you realize through all the books, all the talks is one thread about how we're treating people, whether it's how you treat your customers, how you treat your target audience, how do you treat your, your people? It's all about people. And so that for me was my interest is the topic, not the necessarily the method of delivery of the topic. So I think the right. curiosity creates the expertise as well. Oh, interesting. Because it keeps the expertise fresh. It's one of the reasons why we had the Unpodcast. We did it for six years. We, we paused it when COVID hit, but we did it for six years. And the entire show is Allison and I riffing on yeah. topics. So stories that our listeners send us, stories that we find, newsletters we subscribe to, and we just riffed on topics. It was called The Unpodcast, right. the business show for the fed up. He's oh, getting uh, angry, but, and, and we never ran out of content. Right. So through all those, we had a, a list of all the stories and then we just kept the running lists. And we, Allison and I would do once a month, we'd book a studio in Burlington, B-Town Sound. Um, and we'd have our, our, our engineer come in and our video crew and everything else. We'd do a whole production on it. 
and we we record four episodes because I was on the road so much. So we had one day we record four episodes for the month, and we kept a, a kind of a, a set of all the stories. Right. And then Allison went and went through all thousand stories. We did pick the best hundred and that became the book on branding. So those wow. topics, so that, so the show kept me current on topics. Exactly. So then when a topic would come out that was good for a book and then whatever is good from the book would go on the talk. And so all of our content Just was, fed. was not only about branding and marketing us, but kept us going with the curiosity. Otherwise, my talks could come a bit stale. Like I tell the, some of the same stories. I'm a storyteller. It's my job. And so this yeah. rep, every rep makes the story better. I'm always looking to see if it's, if I can do a pause here, if it's, you know, if it's funnier or whatever. And it's the curiosity that drives the content. And if you're not looking for the content, you're not going to, how do I find the Joshy story that I'm semi-famous for telling at the start of the Ritz Carlton story? It's because I was, uh, got it through a newsletter, saw somebody share it and I went to it. Well, if I leave Facebook and I leave these places, my funnel for curiosity content can go away a bit, but it's still focused on here, this main thing. So the more things I watch on YouTube about um, leadership and the, the, the hesitation of return to work and stuff, the more YouTube feeds it to me. So the curiosity creates that the more you people use a Google news alert. When I was talking about Twitter, when I was an expert, never call yourself the expert, by the way, it's, it's it's very exclusive and and versus an expert, which is inclusive other people. I, and I learned that early on too, Right. but that being an expert in Twitter meant I needed to stay on top of it. So I set up a Google news alert for the word Twitter. Can you imagine how much I got of, of, of <laughs> Twitter being mentioned in the news? But it yeah. ne- not once in a Q&A would somebody say, what do you think about this coming that I didn't understand what they were saying? Right. If I'm going to... One of the problems in the speaking industry is where a lot of times it's focusing on the speaking, the, the craft of speaking, which is important of instead, of, instead of why am I able to get on stage? The credibility, yeah, I mean, the credibility it, to get on stage, the, the, the expertise, the education or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. Hundred percent, and and the speaking should simply be the vehicle with which you're delivering the message right. you're on stage to deliver, and that's it's a I think content that's a delivery distinction. method. Yeah, it's a exactly, content delivery method, yeah. and and that translates to you know I work in digital and technology consulting, and the whole way we frame that to our clients is that the technology and the data is not the be all and end all. It is simply the enabler for the problems you're trying to solve or the experiences you're trying to create, and that's no different from your speaking ability as the skill set to the message that you're trying to deliver and have the audience resonate with. And that, that I find like incredibly powerful as kind of a, yeah. a major distinction the for book speaking. Or the blog post, the talk, the podcast, the interview, the, they're all my, my entire life pretty much has been, I've been the product. Yeah. And, right. and what's, what's interesting though, is like, as much as that is the case, when you look at it started early on, even the way that you chose to apply your speaking skill set early in your career, HR, mm-hmm. right? It was still partially through the lens of how are we treating people, but in a corporate lens. And you just talked about that, all your books, all your discussions, yeah. they're always about how we're treating people. And that yeah. seems to be like your purpose yeah. intersecting with your passion and your skill. And that has to be an enormous unlock in terms of your ability to one, do it well and genuinely and authentically. Right. But then two, to never run out of the endurance to keep doing it. Yeah. But that's, that's the the endurance part too, right? Where you see somebody speak. And when I tell like the Joshy story, the, the, the stuffed uh, giraffe story at the start of most talks, 
it might be the 150th time I've told it, but it's the first right. time that audience has heard me say it. And so I right. deliver it. I deliver it with the same, if not more gusto than I did back then. Right. Because it's a performance too. It's a, it's a, um, I, I have, there's a goal up there, right? I really believe too. Uh, I really try for the laughs because I think if you laugh, you listen. But yeah. if you, but, but I think five years ago, I was going too much for the laugh part of it. Like I was changing some of the slides and some of the decks, but I, I would end the talk with this, with uh, my favorite, one of my favorite tweets, it's a Taco Bell tweet, like somebody, and I get to be, I get to be like, you know, bad humor right at the end. I used to save it for the end and my favorite tweet of all time. And I showed it was, it was a tweet that said, some guy tweets, I just gave birth to a food baby. And I think Taco Bell is the father, which is, <laughs> which to be able to say that in a professional setting is yeah. just, it's just like, oh my, it's the greatest feeling in the world. And I just do the, so I let, I let the joke sit for a minute. People are like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, you didn't think a poop joke was coming to the end, did you? Especially if it's right before lunch. And then yeah. I show the reply Taco Bell and Taco Bell simply says, I want a DNA test. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> and it's a perfect end. So it's a great yeah. line. And it worked perfectly when I, especially when a lot of my talk was about social media. But right. now it's not. Right. And I kept the joke in because oh, it ended the talk on a laugh. Right. But eventually it didn't make a hell of a lot of sense in there. And I eventually pulled it. But I'm just like, because it's such a great ending. Because you laugh, everybody's laughing and they're clapping. You're like, yay. And you walk off the stage. But you're like, what? Why is this in here? It's like, I'll be talking about cars and I show a Taco Bell tweet at the end. It makes no sense. Like, it doesn't. Right, exactly. I think if you laugh, you listen. I, I totally agree with that. I would say one of my, you know, deep interest areas is, is stand-up comedy. And I think Mine that too, stand-up yeah. comedians are some of the most brilliant people on earth. I agree. And they do exactly what you just talked about, that they tell a story or a set and they do it over and over and over again and refine it after they sell it. It would sell it with the same energy, the same gusto, the same commitment and charisma, but they're tweaking and refining it every single time. But What's incredible about them and what I try and weave into my own speaking in front of audiences when I do presentations or otherwise is how they're able to make the audience connect with them by being self-deprecating, by not taking themselves too seriously. And the best ones are always able to do that because then the audience is instantly understanding that we're both humans. You just happen to be telling stories in a way that's going to make me laugh. And to your point, every time you laugh, it feels good. You yeah. want to feel the feeling again. And, you, I, and you're waiting I for the next joke. Laughing. Yeah. And you want to get exactly. the next joke and you're like, oh, he just hit us with a point that made sense. Damn it. You know, and you kind of, now give me, well, give me a couple of comedians. Who's your favorite right now? I know I just flipped the script on you, but you have to No, I mean, he, uh, I, right now in terms of uh, other than the greats, obviously the Dave Chappelle's, the Bill Burr's, et cetera, yes, et cetera. Shane Gillis. I can listen to that yeah. guy. Just shoot the shit. All day. I haven't and, listened. And, I should listen. Yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. And so he just has, you know, as with many great comedians, he has an incredible ability to walk that line. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, of yeah, like, yeah. you're coming really close to this being too far, but then he's able to play it off well. And he's got a totally different look and feel to him. To, and he's also incredible sketch comics. So yeah. Gillian Keeves is their yeah, sketch yeah, comedy yeah. show. Yeah. And so if you, if you're interested, definitely take yeah, a look at that. He's, He's fantastic. So he, I would say in terms of somebody that I listen, I'm, I'm heavy into right now, that's different than most people. I would say him, I, I need to hear yours as well. Then, uh, I love, um, James Acaster. Big uh, fan. Um, yeah, I've watched his four part <laughs> just to say that's a four parter is something on its own. Yeah. I've watched it probably a dozen times. Um, love, right. Uh, so right now, again, outside of the classics, um, but Acaster, uh, love Berbiglia. Uh, oh, very cool. Got to see him on Broadway, this show that he did. It was so great. Um, uh, who else do we got right now? Um, Nate Bargatze. Um, yeah. <laughs> just kills. Um, and then um, 
Yeah, it's uh, Tom Segura too. I love, but oh, I, I, I actually quote, I actually quote Tom on stage. Um, I love it because I actually say, you know, as as the as the great poet Tom Segura once said, some people suck. Yeah, right. And it was just a great, it's a great bit from. And for me, it's funny you say that because I, I also I studied them as well, and because partially also what I do. And yeah, of course, like, like I'm a pretty funny business speaker. Yeah, and people come up to me after a talk and they're like one or two things have you trained to be a comedian or are you one as well and both i say no and both i say it's an insult to comedians because right. the bar for comedy in a business keynote is so low it's like buried in the ground like i don't exactly. have to lift my foot to be the funniest yeah. business speaker of that day it's usually really easy for me to do it yeah and nobody is sitting there in the audience saying well you better make me laugh i you paid know, money for right? it right you walk into yeah. a comedy i have a couple of friends who are comedians and I went to see one at Yuck Yucks in Calgary. I had a gig out there and I'm just sitting there. I'm just like, this is so, so much harder than what I do. Oh yeah. It's so much harder. And oh, yeah. I don't get heckled. I've never right. been booed. Talk I, about instant feedback, right? right? Like right, a, yeah. a, an audience of hundreds or thousands of people could in, immediately in real time tell you that the thing that you do for your profession, you're bad at it. You're bad at it. It's not right. even that the joke was bad. It's beyond that. You're it's like, bad. you're bad. Yeah, you're, you're bad. Yeah. And you, that, yeah. You're bad I, and you should feel bad. Yeah. It's like right on Futurama, right. right? Yeah. It's exactly that. And that's where I have such a respect. For that industry, yeah. uh, I love comedians. Um, I marvel at them. I do I too. I think a lot of them are are greatly disturbed people, and uh, which is why I also love them. And um, it's just like you know, there's like there's a darkness to comedy too. There's, oh, yeah. a, there's a couple of good documentaries on that too, and it's just like you know, to be able to just tolerate that, you know, and to deal with that. I'm like, what was your home life like when you get up and get heckled and you don't flinch? I'm like, you're, just, you're heckled as a child. Like it's just like this whole I the respect I have for, and also I love like watching. Um, there was that. It's on YouTube. Uh, it's that uh, the uh, there's a Gervais and uh, Seinfeld and Chris Rock, and they're all sitting around oh, yeah. just talking about comedy. Yeah, that is one of the mo- best 46 minutes on YouTube to me of just listening to these greats talk about comedy and arguing. And like this is this is everything I w- I would have paid money to watch this because they're right. debating: Do you throw out your act at the end of the year? Because in comedy, in comedy, you know, you do your 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 solid five, your solid fifteen, your solid thirty. Yeah. Then you get your hour special. Eventually, you work it throughout the year. Then you film it, right? You know, it used to be Comedy Central, and it was Netflix, and you do these things. And then some comedians dump it, start again. And right. Some have been doing some of the same bits for decades, and it's an right. interesting thing. And I was so fortunate. My first trip ever to Las Vegas was for my thirtieth birthday. And we had like six of us going and then five of them, four of them backed out. Um, it's when like value jet or some Canadian jet or airline went bankrupt and all of our flights were on it anyway. So I went down with one friend and we did the Vegas thing and we were playing golf. We looked up on the billboard and it just said tonight, George Carlin at the Flamingo. And we're like, want to go? And we're like, yep, yeah, let's go. And we just went, showed up and it was Carlin r- riffing new material. Amazing. He's like, hey, everybody, how's it going? So um, I'm just going to try some new crap out. And he just has a piece of paper and he starts riffing. Incredible. I got to watch Carlin forming his next act. Incredible. At the Flamingo, right? With a bucket of beers. And it was just like, oh. how do I even get to say that I got to witness this? Yeah. Right. That him just working, riffing, doing his thing. And it was, it was Again, I, these are geniuses, geniuses at work, just ge- seeing and that, but that's how I got to where I am in my stage thing too, is not even not, not sitting there and like, you know, with a pad of paper and writing down everything, dude, just watching and saying, 
damn, that's a good way of doing that. And watching, uh, you know, listening to pauses and seeing how they pause and do those type of things. It's uh, um, an absolute brilliant thing. So much of what you say resonates me, with me so deeply. And I, I've had such an incredible time chatting with you today. I, I'm going to use my last question as, as a bit of a selfish one. So, you know, <laughs> you very early realized that speaking was something that you wanted to do as a profession. Yeah. I think I early in my life recognized it was a very powerful tool I could use to advance myself in whatever profession I ended up in. Mm-hmm. But but now I do this podcast, I'm client facing, I do these presentations in my life, I'm getting relatively senior in my company. And like, I'm starting to see that there at some level, on at some point in my career, I could see myself doing some form of speaking yeah. for, for work. What what does one in my situation do? Right. And to even explore and confirm that that world is the right world for me and what the path to, to entering that world looks like. Sure. So uh, um, I'll give you two, two, two parts. Uh, one, if you want to get booked as a speaker at, at a frequency, like if you just casually want to speak at some events once in a while for your company, that usually happens is through. You, you just let it be known. Yeah, of course. Hey, I'm happy to do this. Or you start researching some conferences and saying, hey, or you look at one you wanted to attend that just recently happened and apply for it next year. Like a lot, if, when they're, so events within your own industry usually don't pay. That's right. the golden rule. So if you're, if you're in the, uh, the vertical, if you're in the industry, you, you don't get paid in the bubble. That's the one thing that I learned very early on. And it's, it's kept me, you know, made total sense my entire career. So right. like, for example, um, I would speak at like content marketing world and inbound and stuff in Boston. And, uh, I, I never got paid for that. Uh, right. did those, uh, for sponsor things, or I did that too. I did that. Like, again, like c- c- uh, comedians, I just worked new material. I would do a breakout at inbound with 45 people and I would show up in my Jays Jersey <laughs> and the Red Sox were, you know, decent and, uh, and, and try to piss off as many Boston people that could, but I right. would, I would talk about stuff I usually wouldn't do in a keynote or I test stuff out. Um, but if you wanted to do it with, with some kind of frequency, like make it a good part of your, your, either your life or your business, or even more so down the road, you need three things. The three T's it's trailers, topics, and testimonials. Okay. Trailers means a video and I don't, it doesn't have to be a trailer. It doesn't have to be a demo. It just says uh, somebody could see you speak for any amount of time to notice that you can at least walk your talk. It doesn't mean you're a performer. It doesn't mean you're, you have to be right. crazier or hugely polished. It's just, it, it, it helps. Yeah. But it's one of the things is you don't have to use it as a demo. You can use it as content. You know, it's like, right. hey, here's, a, here's a talk I just did, or here's when I talked about a case study, whatever it is. But one of the benefits also of filming something, I would always get it filmed even if it's just for your own use. It's, it's hard for a lot of people to watch themselves talk. It isn't for me because I'm a narcissist, but it's hard <laughs> for a lot of people to hear it. But also it's hard for me to listen to my, see my talks from five years ago. Right. Right. My voice tone is different. That's just through now. I never sat there and said, I need to try this now. And it, it's just through, it's through reps, right? doing it and doing it and trying out on stage a longer pause. Right. Which, by the way, I wish every speaker could just try that. Just pause sometimes, like take a freaking breath once in a while. Yeah. Also, just let a point linger. It feels weird on stage. Saturate. I'll, I'll hold a pause for two or three or four seconds. Feels like 10 minutes, but it, it lets things soak in. It's really helped my, I, that's one of the biggest things I've noticed because just watching yourself, you, like I watched myself way back in college and I noticed I was doing this. And if you're listening, I'm, I was taking like my fingers and kind of wiping my nose a bit almost. As yeah. if I had something in my note and I never did. And I was doing it and it would cup in front of the microphone. And I didn't even know I was doing it until I watched a video. Oh, wow. So sometimes, because I taught presentations at, at Sheridan College for years as well. 
And I had to learn how to, t- to teach it because some of the stuff I was doing wasn't natural to other people. Right. I'm, again, really lucky. I had those things. And part of that was ums. And what I would do in class, it was torture for the students, but it made them better presenters and they all had to do it. Right. They got up and they, and so the curriculum was, here's business topics, have your students present them. And I said, screw that. Pick any topic, any topic. I just want you to do reps. And the only thing you're going to be marked on is your second one was better than your first. That's it. Oh, interesting. And so one would talk about Xbox. One would talk about a certain car. One would talk about watches. So anything passionate about, so they weren't getting nervous about the con, the topic. Right. It was the delivery. And what would happen was I would track the ums. And each talk was like seven minutes or whatever. I'd track the ums. And then I'd have the students give them feedback. What, what's one thing they were did well at? What's the thing they can, should work on? And then I asked uh, the, the speaker, how many ums did you think you'd say? And one person said, I think three or four. It was pretty bad. And I said, you had 34. Yeah. Right. And it's listening. There's an app called Ummo oh, that will actually flag your ums. There's technology now today. There's a lot of things. There's a one called a virtual presenter. You can put on like a, a, a VR headset and it will put you in front of a virtual audience to talk. Like, so there's ways to work on it or you, or you can go classic. You can go, you can go offline. You go Toastmasters, these type of things. But it's yeah. a point of just doing because every rep helps the next talk. That's right. So the video will help you, but also it could become content, but also because somebody can see, somebody can see because when you pitch a place, they're going to say, Hey, do you have any video of you speaking? They'll always ask for that. Second is topics. And that's, that's what it sounds like. What do you talk about? Yeah. Know, what is your thing? And a lot of times if you're with a part of a corporation that gets you in, you know, to an organization, especially if the corporation's sponsoring the event somewhere, there's usually gonna be a breakout or two that sponsor can fill right. with, with the speaker. Um, and so it's topics and usually a couple of them would be, is, is decent. And then, um, is testimonials is the third one. That's social proof, right? The number one reason I told you somebody has these books you speak because they saw you somewhere else. The number two reason is somebody that they trust. Well, right. One of those things is testimonials. And I do that within LinkedIn. Usually I usually get the testimonial through LinkedIn. Now it's on my profile and it's linked to their profile as well. And then I take right. a screenshot of it. I put it onto my website. And the reason I take no a brainer. screenshot of it is that person in the brand sometimes changes companies. So on my website right now, I have the director of communications for Walmart. When I went down to Bentonville, Arkansas and spoke to them, yeehaw, went down there, spoke to them, has it on my website, but now he's not at Walmart anymore. Right. It was LinkedIn profile information changes. But at the time of the testimonial, he was at Walmart. That's testimonial for my Walmart gig. Right. I was using the tools for that. Those are, those are the three parts. And then it is simply a fact of, are they coming to ask you to speak? And if not, well, that's how you start pitching. Right. And again, regional, local type of things, whatever it's going to be. But a lot of times too, I, I put it on LinkedIn. Hey, I just did a talk yesterday in Toronto. Like if I, if I wanted gigs, I would make it known I do gigs. Interesting. Because a, a lot of times you don't, right? You do it because somebody at work saw you. Hey, can you come talk about this thing? We're doing a little cocktail reception. Can you come talk 15 minutes on this topic? Then I'm going on LinkedIn the next day saying, Hey, here's a picture of the event. Awesome. I'm so glad I got to talk about this topic. And I also, I give kudos to whoever else was speaking. If I saw it right. Connects y'all. And it's just, it's connections. If you believe businesses are built on relationships, make building them your business. That's the point. Connect with people and give that social currency, give the credit before demanding it from people. That's how you form these things. And then next thing you know, somebody at that cocktail reception of 26 people on Bloor yeah. in Toronto at some 27th floor overlooking Toronto person there's like, Hey, I'm, I actually am. I sit on a committee for this thing. Would you come and there you go. Yeah. Now getting paid to speak is a different level. Right. 
So it's like, okay, now is now are you professionals like getting paid to speak for something? That's that's another thing. So then it usually starts off. It's like uh, it's it's <laughs> the term is, is TNA, but it, <laughs> it is travel and accommodation. <laughs> Get yourself some of that TNA, and uh, usually that's how it starts. And then, but when I started, I did thirty cities, ten weeks, like I said, and yeah. I got an inquiry. Hey, can you come speak at our thing? How much is it and stuff? And I'm like, I don't know. Is it three dollars? I don't know how much to charge. And I asked a few speakers, and they said usually you start at around five grand or so. And I'm like five grand, and they're like, great, awesome. And I'm like, oh, that was too low because they automatically said yes. I'm like, I mean, yeah. uh, that's the deposit. I mean, and uh, and you just go from there. The only time I've ever recre- increased my rate and what I do is when I get too busy, right? You know, I just and I just and I trust my bureau to know where I stand in the in the fee ranges of places. I know I also am fairly not fully, but fairly self aware where I stand, which is I'm not a celebrity. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't sold a million books. We're in six figures, not seven for it. And I'm not a, I'm not on Shark Tank. You know, I'm not on Dragon's Den. So I know where, I know the silos and speaking really well. So I know I am a tier two keynote yeah. speaker. So I'm below the Gladwells and the Godens and Adam Grant and things like that. And it's, it's, that's exactly where I want to sit. Right. It's just a perfect spot. I love it. it and that's where I want to be. My, my, my wheels are just turning, you know, I, like, I, <laughs> some good. of the things you said instantly, I'm just like, Oh, I could do that. I have yeah. a connection that can help me do that. Yeah. Right. Inside my own org outside. Um, but it's just about f- having it framed up by somebody who's done it. Right. Yeah. And, and then it immediately just sparks the ideas. Yeah. Uh, Scott, I, I don't know how to thank you enough, but this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. I'm Likewise. just inspired to, to, you know, jump and pursue some of these things myself. There's so much here for people to extract, apply to their own careers. Uh, yeah, but, I, but, sincerely, but, but give yourself some credit here too, because you mentioned it earlier on in this and people listening right now, I think know this, you're passionate. And that passion of asking questions and being active listening to the answers makes me saying what I say easier to say. And it gets me going too. So it's like, I've done, I don't do a lot of podcasts nowadays, but when I did them, especially when the books would come out, you're doing the circuit and stuff like some host, you're just like, uh, like I'm pulling teeth. You're the host, you know, it's supposed to be the other way around. And, and it's been a pleasure talking to you this whole time. It's, it's been, we, well, we connected almost two hours ago, uh, just in general. And I'm just like, it's been great. Well, that is immeasurably flattering. And I, and, and it has made my day. So I appreciate it again. <laughs> and I sincerely hope to be able to have you on here in the future again, yeah, so we can connect time. and talk about all the things that didn't make it onto the podcast. <laughs> so thank you again. And we'll, we'll chat very soon. Be sure to join us for the after hour special later on. That, yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Pete.